This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, March 2nd. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Bluegrass announces 50th festival schedule, Case looks to clarify grant process, new work of note from Edgar Carose, and a mountain weather forecast. Throngs of local Festivarians flocked to the Purple House on Pine on Wednesday to get their hands on coveted tickets to the 50th annual Telluride Bluegrass Festival. And once again, when it comes to the lineup, Planet Bluegrass doesn't disappoint. In addition to local tickets, the festival announced the daily schedule for the music-packed weekend. Kicking off the festival will, of course, be none other than Chris Teeley. Thursday, we'll also see Bella White, Long John, Natalie McMaster, and Danelle Leahy. There will also be the Del McCreary Band, Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, and String Cheese Incident. Friday, we'll feature Two Runner, Town Mountain, the Peter Rowan Band, Baseku Koyate, and Ngone Ba, Leftover Salmon, Sarah Jarose, Nickel Creek, and Green Sky Bluegrass. For Saturday, there will be Full Chord, Tim O'Brien Band, Sierra Farrell, the Earls of Leicester, Yonder Mountain String Band, Sam Bush Band, and Mary Chapin Carpenter. Finally, Sunday will close down the festival with the infamous String Dusters. Yasmeen Williams, Punch Brothers, Gregory Allen Isakoff, the Telluride House Band, Emilou Harris with Watch House, and Robert Plant and Alison Krauss. The 50th Telluride Bluegrass Festival will take place in Town Park June 15th through 18th, 2023. There will be single-day local tickets available for sale at the box office in June. The Telluride Commission for Community Assistance, Arts and Special Events, or CASE, is looking to shift its grant process. Each year, CASE is charged with allocating grant funding to local nonprofits through a months-long application process. After the grants are distributed, but before the application process picks up again, CASE meets to debrief on the application grant process and places it can shift to make things go more smoothly. At a meeting this week, Telluride Parks and Recreation Director Stephanie Jacquet provided preliminary recommendations on shifts the commission could make. One is to really bolster and use our existing review criteria in conjunction to application questions um, so that we can try and uh, try and improve how grant applications are being evaluated and then also establish more guidelines and structure for the public meeting where the um, deliberations occur. Jacquet notes staff recommends looking at common mistakes on the grant application to ensure the questions are clear and potentially shortening the application process. I think focusing on your review criteria, your review process, and um, your allocation meeting are, are, are the meat. Telluride Town Council member Adrian Christie does not sit on the case board, but was at the meeting. She suggests potentially looking at different application forms for different organizations. There could be, if there's a dollar amount, say it's 5000 or 10000 and this is something that happens for us for some of the, for one-to-one mentoring, some of the funders that we have, there's a short form that it's like, if it's 5000 or less, if it's 10000 or less, there's less questions. It's kind of like an easier thing and it's less work for you all. When it comes to discussion at the meeting to allocate funds themselves, Christie shares concerns that some organizations receive no discussion, while others have a back and forth between board members. Case Board Chair Sasha Cuccinello says that all depends on whether there's agreement from the board on what funding levels should be. We only really talk about organizations that we don't, that the... That we disagree on. Yeah, that the... um 
the board average we disagree on. Okay, fair. And that that's just the process. Is yeah. like we, like if we all agree that so and so the board average is twelve thousand dollars, and we're all like thumbs up. We just move on. Yeah. Otherwise, our our meeting would be twelve hours. Sure. Case board member Jackie Garcia suggests providing written feedback for organizations, even if the board doesn't discuss the organization at length, using cases grant criteria. The numbers of review criteria that we each individually made our decisions on, and if there's some that stick out, it'd be like this is why you know maybe like a board average of the reasons that we've chosen to fund or not fund them, so like the. The organizations that don't get discussed, everyone can see, or at least they can see why those decisions are made. The case board decided to create a subcommittee to discuss the possibility of a shorter application for smaller grant requests and look at the review criteria, both how it plays out in application questions and grant allocations. Cuccinello again. What questions are really reflective of those review criteria. If that's what we're reviewing off of, then every question should be tied to one of those criteria. Case member Claudia Garcia-Curcio wants to make sure the questions are especially clear when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I want to be more specific to like, how are you being equitable to underrepresented marginalized population? Mm -hmm. Because I was looking at all the applications and some people don't understand what diversity, equity, and inclusion is. It's like, oh yeah, we bring films from all over the world. No, like I'm talking about in our community, how are you being equitable? And so it gets lost in translation. So I know that's a larger conversation and I want to move towards like, how can we make this process where people actually understand what we're asking when it comes to those questions? Case board members Courtney McKelleny, Ellen Eleven, and Jackie Garcia will sit on the grant subcommittee to discuss the application and review criteria and process. They will make a recommendation back to the full case board prior to the 2023 grant application season. Telluride Arts and the Augment Music Project have teamed up to fund area musicians in a whole range of recording and performance projects. KOTO's Gavin McGough took the opportunity to speak with a handful of grantees about their plans. Today, we'll hear from rapper and musician Edgar Carose and producer and musician and Shiloh about their upcoming EP, New Vintage. Carose, who performs under the name EQ, begins. Let me get a light. Let me get a light. Let me get a light. Whoa! I got into music at around 14 years old, and I just, I loved music. I loved listening to it, no matter what kind of music it was. I liked how it made me feel. And then when I really got to experimenting with it, it was a great outlet for me to express myself and really just write down and get creative with just my emotions, my thoughts, and all that. It's really nice to meet you, meet you, yeah, you're my senorita, ita, yeah, the Augment Grant came about, I saw an advertisement, I think on Facebook or on social media somewhere. And, you know, I grew up in Telluride. I worked here not too long ago and, you know, very involved in the Telluride community. And I love this community. I mean, I grew up here. And so, I, you know, it felt right to apply. I have several projects that I'm working on. So just getting that support financially, you know, it was, you know, it was one of those chances where if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. And it did. So very thankful for sure. I'm, I run a recording studio. I recently opened up La Familia Music Group Studios in Montrose, Colorado. Um, since I made that move, um, 
it's actually helped me grow more into this entrepreneur artist that I want to, you know, that I'm becoming. The project is called New Vintage. It's going to be a shorter EP, about four, maybe five songs on it. Um, right now, we have a couple songs uh, recorded and in the making, and it's going to be a really funky disco hip-hop vibe. And the, new, the name comes from basically bringing a modern touch to older music. So um, older sounds like the funky vibes and all that stuff, the disco vibes, and mixing it up with newer drums, heavier drums, or um, give it that hip-hop feel, that more modern feel. So that's where the new vintage comes from. And Shiloh, an audio engineer who works with La Familia Music Group, is collaborating with EQ on the project. And my role in it is basically recording him, uh, making sure that all the takes that we get are to his liking and up to up to our standard. And then from there, once we have everything recorded and uh, laid out, my job is to go in, mix, master, polish it up. But I am also involved in the performance part of it. Um, I'm an artist myself. Sometimes, yes, lyrics is my, you know, the main thing I'm going for. And, you know, I want to execute that properly and make sure I'm storytelling properly and all that. And then there's other times like this project, New Vintage, where it's just more fun and more of the feel, the vibe we're going for. It's just a good feeling and get the people dancing. You know, it, it depends on what we're working on, how I'm feeling. That was Edgar Quiroz, who performs as EQ, and audio engineer and Shiloh. Both musicians work with La Familia Music Group, which Quiroz founded in Montrose. The backing track will be released with New Vintage and was produced by La Familia and Cheap Limousine Productions. Farmers markets exude long summer days, but the winter market in Mountain Village is still going strong. Starting in January, the winter market provides opportunities for vendors to share local crafts, jewelry, baked goods, lavender, artisanal ghee, and many more with the community. According to Mountain Village officials, the market has seen such success, the town is extending it through mid-March. The winter market in Mountain Village will take place the first three Fridays in March, with new times, noon to 4 p.m., at the Conference Center Plaza in Mountain Village. Free hot chocolate and live music will also accompany the market. Mountain Film is coming to the Mesa. The festival will host a Mountain Film for Locals event next week at the Lone Cone Library in Norwood. The night will feature short films highlighting adventure and the indomitable spirit, it will take place alongside the library's new Charlie Fowler exhibit, highlighting books from the late Mountaineer. According to library staff, when Fowler passed away, a portion of his books were donated to the library. The exhibit will feature those books, a photograph of Fowler from Axel Koch, and other artifacts from the community. Mountain Film for Locals in Norwood will take place on Thursday, March 9th at 7 p.m. at the Lone Cone Library. The final Mountain Film for Locals of the season will take place in Telluride at the Wilkinson Public Library on Wednesday, March 22nd.
State lawmakers introduced a package of five bills on Wednesday to expand disability access. One of those bills would require a percentage of some new residential construction to be wheelchair accessible. Representative David Ortiz, the first state lawmaker to use a wheelchair, is a leader behind the bills. I must have participated in a thousand searches before I finally found a home where a wheelchair user lived in it in the 70s. And just so y'all have an indication of of what is out there, less than 5% of housing stock in the U.S. is accessible at all. Less than 1% is accessible for someone living in a wheelchair. Another bill would require all government buildings are fully accessible within six years. That includes offering remote access to all public proceedings. The bills will undergo committee hearings and, if approved, will be considered by the General Assembly. States in the lower Colorado River Basin are pushing back on a proposal from their upper basin counterparts. KUNC's Alex Hager reports they're responding to a call to suspend some water releases to prop up Lake Powell. Arizona, California, and Nevada wrote a letter to the Federal Bureau of Reclamation saying they're mostly on board with plans to pause some of those releases and let reservoirs upstream of Lake Powell fill back up. But they think we need more time to see if the snow that fills them stays strong for a few more months. Arizona's top water official Tom Bushatsky says at the end of the day, everyone needs to be consulted before taking action. It is not solely at the discretion of the upper basin and reclamation. The lower basin has a key role in whether or not things like this should and can move forward. Reclamation has the final say in the matter and hasn't yet told states if it plans to cut back on water releases. I'm Alex Hager. In the United States, less than 1% of midwives are male, according to national data. That figure holds true in Colorado. State data from February of this year shows Colorado has four men certified as nurse midwives. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KVNF's Laura Palmasano speaks with one of those midwives, Adrian Medina. He's the only nurse midwife on staff at St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction. What is it like working in a female-dominated profession? I get asked that frequently, and it is true. I, I started my career, of course, as a registered nurse working in labor and delivery, and that is female-dominated, of course. And then I furthered my study and became a midwife. But I got my first interaction with the midwife, and his name was Jim Finch, and he was a great guy. I talk about him a lot. But I, I said, oh, and then I didn't think there was anything different about being male, but certainly the experience is really, it's all I've ever known. Working with women and really dedicating my career to serving women, it's been great. And I think that it's a unique perspective, but it's no different than I think working anywhere else, but I wouldn't know because I've never really worked anywhere else other than with women. You started your career as a labor and delivery nurse. What made you decide to become a midwife instead? I was very much involved in labor and delivery nursing. I think it's a fantastic profession. And in terms of someone's birth experience, a labor and delivery nurse really has a lot to do with that. Because more so than when I'm with a patient or if I labor sit even, a labor and delivery nurse is there the whole time and is with the patient and helping moms with their birth experience. And I love doing that, but I had so many different interactions with midwives, with OBGYNs. And I said, you know, I want to take this to another level and I want to be able to care for women the same way they do. 
And that's where that change happened. And it was around two years as a nurse. And then I studied to be a midwife. You are from Guam. Tell us about your training there as a midwife. Guam's a unique place. It's an island. It's four hours or so from the Philippines. It's in the Pacific. Beautiful place. And I remember in training, because we had so many women from outer islands of Micronesia and also locals, Chamorros, Filipinos, and a really busy military population too. So it's quite a nice variation in in your patient population. It was very nice. I went to Frontier Nursing University, and that's in Kentucky, and they had an excellent distance education program. And typically what we see now is it's a hybrid, and that's what Frontier was all about. So I was able to fly there from Guam and do clinical, learn, and then come back and really do practice. So that's where I learned under Jim Finch and many other midwives and OBs. Compare Guam to the U.S., how are birth experiences different? I think there's a few differences. Mainly, a lot of the births here in the U.S. are medicated, meaning epidural. And so I would say 90% maybe here have epidurals during labor and birth. And on Guam, the reverse is true. So a lot of the pain, although medications do come into play, most of it was, quote unquote, unmedicated, where they took some medication, but still it's nothing like an epidural. So that was very interesting. What are some changes you want to see in the field of midwifery? More conversations about postnatal care, and I think a more interdisciplinary approach, meaning pelvic floor PT, behavioral health. I think that all ties into having a great postnatal experience. Women really benefit from having all of those options available. And I know this because when I was practicing in Guam, we didn't have that. We were very resource limited. So having those resources available, not say that the care is better here and not better there, but I think having them available really gives you the best care for women and their families. How did you end up coming to the U.S. mainland? That came from having our son. His name is Ezra. He's a year old. And he was born in Guam. And my wife, she's from Oklahoma. She's a NICU nurse, at the time a labor and delivery nurse. A lot of our family, most of our family really is in the States, and travel from Guam is quite expensive. So we said, you know, I think it would be good to have Ezra around family. And we both love Colorado. We said, why don't we start looking? And when the opportunity at St. Mary's came up, I think it was the perfect fit. And we decided to pack up our whole family three of us, and six suitcases, and come to Colorado. That was certified nurse midwife Adrian Medina with St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction. I'm Laura Palmisano. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a low around 10 degrees. Friday, there's a 20% chance of snow showers with partly sunny skies and a high in the mid-30s. Friday night, expect mostly cloudy skies, gradually becoming clear with a low around 10. Saturday should be partly sunny during the day and partly cloudy at night with a high near 40 degrees and a low around 20. This has been the news for Thursday, March 2nd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.